Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Movie Chumps, episode 24-7. Let's get after it. Oh, here's the old school trailer first. You like what you do for a living? These things you see. You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I'm going to inside five years. Not here. Now, they're caught in a game. No fingerprints and no witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Body was found on Tuesday morning. I hate this city. We're going to get who did this. This will be the very definition of swift justice. There are two more bodies, two more victims. This guy is methodical, exacting, and worst of all, patient. He's laughing at us. He had a gun. He's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. Let's finish it. Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow. This might have arguably the greatest twist ending in movie history in terms of that pure wow factor. 1995-7, which, Corey, is the second week in a row we're dissecting a movie that has numbers in the title. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yes, we are. I don't know if that means anything about us, if we're as you know crazy as John Doe in this case, but uh, I, I, I don't think so. And it, it's that you mentioned the ending. And I pro- we'll probably get into it when we talk about it, but it's an ending that almost didn't happen if the studios would have had their way. I love that you did a little deep diving on this. I did as well, and it sounds like we came up with some of the uh, the same kind of fun facts, mm-hmm. if you will. It's uh, Movie Chumps, folks, episode 24, as mentioned. Luke Mayo here, recording live from the People's Republic of Irondequoit. And Corey Cook over in the town of Henrietta. I believe it's the only town named after a woman here in the great Monroe County, if I'm not mistaken. You, you could be right. I think it's I kind am. of sexist, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we need more towns named after women here. In yes, we do, don't we? 
I tweeted that fun like, fact once, and this one guy I used to work with was like, actually, Mayo, you're wrong. There's Caledonia. And I'm like, that's not Monroe County. Am I right? Because you're from Caledonia. Yes. Also, Caledonia is the Gaelic word for Scotland. Ah, that's not okay. a woman's name. So he, <laughs> so he was wrong twice. So you were, he's doubly wrong. Take <laughs> it from the person who grew up there. I know. Ah, <laughs> yes. There we go. Some, some interesting information from Corey Cook as always. Welcome, uh, welcome to the Women Towns podcast. I'm Corey and Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Good evening. As per tradition, we do our little mm-hmm. five questions to get the juices flowing, to, to get our mind smooth and tight, and that doesn't make any sense. So this time it's no, it doesn't. five questions. You, you're throwing out a word salad tonight, Luke. We a lot of, a lot of, I'm, a I'm, I'm definitely, I've been off my word salad game. I'm bringing it back. <laughs> okay. All right. That's some, add some ranch in there. All right. First question. In honor of this movie, let me ask you, Mr. Mayo, what is your favorite number? <laughs> I was like, no way he asks favorite number. 33, of course. My all-time favorite basketball player, Larry Bird. It was my number in high school. I'm very, uh, I'm very partial to the number. Uh, I also feel like I earned it. There's a um, little story back in the day. I think it was sophomore year, JV. My, uh, my buddy Alan Keppen was a big Patrick Ewing fan. Mm-hmm. And we were picking jersey numbers. And he wanted 33 for Ewing. I wanted 33 for Bird. Right. I was, like, I was like, Alan, come on, man. I've been a fan. Of, I've been a basketball fan longer than you. I think he was like, he'd been a fan maybe for like a couple of years or something like that. He just mm-hmm. had a long history as me. And I kind of used that like against him. And the coach or somebody was like, why don't you guys just shoot free throws for it? And I'm like, uh-huh. okay, now I'm going to freaking miss. And he, I was a better shooter. Now I'm going right. to miss. He's going to make it what the heck am I going to pick after this? You know, but then the confidence kicked in. I think we both kind of made our first couple buckets eventually mm-hmm. he missed first and boom. So it wasn't like a finding Forrester situation where the two dudes are going against <laughs> each other, made like 50 buckets in a row. <laughs> Nothing like that. It was like, I two. figured it would be third. I, I made a, I might've made two in a row. <laughs> All right, I got That's two. the second one. I win. Um, but yeah, I figured it would be 33. I know you're a big fan of Larry. It's obviously in your Twitter handle too, I noticed. So for me, uh, it's 42. Um, and anybody who is a fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy will know why. Jackie Robinson? <laughs> no. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas no, know, Adams. Four, 42 is the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. Ooh, I still <laughs> haven't read that book. Everybody tells me it's a must read. <laughs> There's like five or six of them. They're great parody, and they're they're really cleverly written. They're funny. I remember reading them when I was like 12 or something like that, um, and listening to like the old BBC. Uh, um, they did like a play thing for it that was really really cool. Movie wasn't quite as good, although, although it had its moments. Um, but yeah, I was I was always partial to 42. Yeah, I heard the movie so, was lackluster. Good to know though. Interesting. Yeah, it, it, it was fine. You know, it wasn't. I mean, it, it had its moments. Um, Question two, UFC match between Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, who wins? UFC match? UFC match. Like in the cage, in the octagon. Cinderella's uh, underdog story speaks to me. I'm going to go Cinderella for that reason only. I think I would go Cinderella for two reasons. One, I think that she would be probable to pull out that glass slipper in a critical moment and just take sleeping beauty out right in in the neck um other other thing too is i think sleeping beauty might be prone to narcolepsy in the octagon so i'm I'm, my money's on cinderella in this case folks this podcast sponsored by disney and ambien (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Seriously. Uh, question three. And I don't know, this one just randomly kicked into my mind earlier this week. And the, the holiday itself is, is still a little bit ways off. Halloween's a couple months. But I want to get your opinion on what you think the appropriate time is before Halloween to put up the jack-o'-lanterns. You know, that's a brilliant question because most people use this question when talking about uh, Christmas decorations. Mm-hmm. So for Halloween, I think I kind of like October 1st. Okay. That's a great question, too, because I, I've never thought about this before. Mm-hmm. I feel like October 1st is the perfect time. Because if you put them up before then, September's kind of like back to school month, right? That's a month right. dedicated to school and, you know, you start getting that crisp in the air. Kind of the mm-hmm. last weeks where you can wear shorts. Pumpkin spice. October, <laughs> yeah, overrated. And then October kicks in. I feel Ooh. like that's completely dedicated to Halloween. That's like its own thing, right? That's the hors d'oeuvres to the holiday season. Then you got Thanksgiving and, of course, Christmas and all that good stuff. So October 1st for me, earliest time for the decks. Okay. See, for me, I'm going to go two weeks prior to October. I'm going to go for July. Halloween. Yeah, July. I'm going to go two weeks prior to, to Halloween. Um, I think that's an appropriate amount of time because I feel like if you go October 1st, your pumpkins are going to be toast by the time October 31st rolls around. At least if you're talking about Western New York weather, you know, it might be a little different if you're talking, say, Arizona or Nevada or something like that. But I, I got to go with uh, um, uh, with about two weeks before. And I can't. Oh, yeah. When, it, when no, you come to pumpkins, definitely. I was thinking more ghosts and goblins and cobwebs oh. above the door. Oh, okay. I said jack-o'-lanterns. Like I meant specifically. Like, Maybe I just assumed you meant decorations. You must have. If that's um, the if case, you're October first, about- pumpkins. Yeah, two weeks. Okay. Yeah, you. and I agree. If you're t- if we're talking simply decorations, I think October first is fine as well. My you're wife in is the correct. Month. I have selective hearing. <laughs> oh, my my wife says that occasionally too. At least at least I think I, she said that. I really wasn't paying attention. Um, <laughs> but and I wait just to just to before we get on to the fourth question. So you're not a fan of pumpkin spice? I hate to sound I like just think every it's overrated, sports broadcaster right? here. Uh, I like it. I don't love it. Okay. The sports broadcasters okay. clichely like to say, I like it. I don't yeah. love it. I've, I don't think mm-hmm. I've had one in about a few years. Mm-hmm. I think all the social media crap about it and girls going nuts. Oh, my God. I got my first pumpkin spice today. And it wasn't <laughs> as good as the other Starbucks that I normally go to. I'm like, you got <laughs> n- is there nothing else to discuss? Right. I, I get it. I can't. It's but kind it of oversaturated. To market. I, oh, I love it. I it's think like, uh, the Dunkin' Donuts, pumpkin spice, iced lattes are just delicious to me. I love the what the Starbucks does with their with their fraps. Um, you know, sp- pumpkin spice cookies like I had pumpkin spice. Um, uh, what is it like muffins that are really, really good. And just one that was like a cupcake with like this cinnamon frosting on it that was just delish. But it's right. It, I think it is oversaturated. Like it's like I saw one that was like pumpkin spice potato chips. I'm like, dude. Come on, bro. We really don't need this. But it's funny that I even thought about this because I saw something that was so perfectly 2020 the other day. Somebody said with with autumn, it was a tweet. It was like with autumn fast approaching and and pumpkin spice time almost here. Let's just take a moment to remember that this is 2020 and let's not shit over all over anyone's joy if they happen to like something because of the fact that. You know, this is really not the year to do that. And I was like, you know what? You're absolutely right. <laughs> excellent, excellent point. You you mentioned Twitter. Are you back on Twitter? You were I'm on not, but occasionally. So here's the thing: is like occasionally people will send me links in my text messages for my phone that sh- that shows me stuff like that. And occasionally, if I'll be reading for an article, it'll have a link to a Twitter or something like that. But no, I am I'm not. 
back on that uh, toxic death trap of awful. <laughs> Good for you for taking um, that break. It's important. Mental health. Oh, I, Big I needed it. I needed it. I mean, well, you just can't tend to get sucked down into rabbit holes, you know, and you just end up being there worse than you are before. I mean, like I was listening to um, the podcast for a guy who used to work with Chris Brumbray, who's now the head of Joe Blow. And he's like, if I didn't have to be on Twitter for my work, I wouldn't because I always leave more miserable than I was before. And it's just, it's just, it's, that's so a whole other podcast entirely. So, much pessimism. so many lines in the sand and you know, it's everyone's just like, it's a black or white issue. And Mike, I hate to bring up Mike again. He's, he's becoming like the phantom person on this podcast, but he made a great point. You know, the day when we were discussing things on, on over a text message, he's, he's like discourse lives in the gray area. And I was like, dude, yes. that's the title. Of your, that was like, that's the title of your book. Cause discourse does not live in the black and white sentiments. It lives like, in the gray. And area. I like how you said it lines in the sand. That's yeah, another, that's Twitter, it, the Twitter story. Lines. I mean, which is, which is not to say that you know every once in a while you gotta set, you gotta put your foot, a, you know, a line in the sand and say, you know, this is wrong or this is right, and I'm sticking to this, and you're not gonna change my mind. But it's not something that needs to be done a twelve dozen times a day. That's not how, that's not how human beings are, and that's not how life works. Absolutely, so, preach it. I'm stepping preach off my so, yes, preach it, brother. Stepping off my soap soapbox and back on the the fourth question. So here's one I think you will really like. In fact, because you love politics and history and stuff. Pick one president from the 19th century and one president from the 20th century to debate each other. Who would you pick? It's hard, you got, it's hard not to say Lincoln. Mm -hmm. But Ulysses S. Grant might be my favorite president of all time as time goes on. Wow. The more I learn That's about it. Interesting. More so, maybe not so much president, but just as a man. I mean, his, mm -hmm. his, his presidential, not to get all off topic, his term and his terms in the White House weren't necessarily glorious, but just him in as a man, I find the most maybe fascinating as president. Ooh, so you said there has to be president, right? Yeah. So president for the 19th century, president from the 20th century. I would have liked to have seen Kennedy debate again. Okay. Like, I think he just handed Nixon his ass, um, but he had the advantage, of course, Right, we all know about that, the whole TV thing. So I'm going to go mm -hmm. Kennedy and – give me Kennedy and Lincoln. I'd like to see those two go head-to-head. -head. Okay. I am going to go with Thomas Jefferson and Ronald Reagan. I think that would be an interesting point of view to, to hear their, their take on, on, on things. You know, I originally was going to go with, like, Lincoln and, and Kennedy, but I felt like – I'm not to detract against your choice. It felt, like, too obvious almost. So I was like – those would be two interesting ones, I think. Screw you. <laughs> I knew I'd get that response. All right, question five, sir. This is in light of a recent uh, athletic feat that I found absolutely stupendous, even though I'm not a huge fan of hockey. But what do you think is more impressive, 85 saves in a hockey game or back-to-back no-hitters? Has to be saves. Okay. Because no-hitters, you at least have your defense to rely on. You have a little more deep to rely on with defense. Sometimes you're just feeling it, and I get it, right? Like, we've all seen pitchers when they're just on. But I feel like the law of averages, right, the sacred geometry of chance, as one, I think, baseball writer actually put it, you'd have to have, out of all those shots on goal, one of them would have to go in unless it's right. a six-year-old, you know, making the effort. So I'm going to say I'm going to go with the saves. You know, I think you changed my mind. I was going to say 
the back-to-back no-hitters, because it's only happened once in the entire history of Major League Baseball back in the 30s or 40s, I think. Who was it? I forget the name now. Uh, you'd have oh, to fact-check me on that. No, oh, it, w- it wasn't anybody like really – it's not a name that just kind of jumps out to you, but it's only happened once. But the more I think about it, I think I would agree with you. If Because of the fact that with, with no-hitters, you know, you don't ha- you're not in complete control. Because you know you got to rely on your defense, you got to rely on on um, you know if there's this sometimes a spectacular play to to keep the situation alive. Whereas with the saves, you know as the song says from Rocky IV, it's you against you. You know you're just kind of right there in the midst of things um, and and ready to to rock. You have the, you kind of have the most control over it. Oh, and by the way, I have to do a, a retraction from a Rocky IV. Uh, podcast. I got called on it pretty hard by my friend JD. Is that um, <laughs> song in there? Is 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 uh, not by Foreigner. It's by Survivor. I accidentally said Survivor. Uh, said uh, Foreigner when it was actually because you were thinking of Rochester's own Lou Graham. I think I was. You know, I got caught up in that moment. But yeah, that's our five questions, ladies and gentlemen. Five of them. Five of them things. Cinco. Corey. This freaking, you know, I love jumping to the endings. I hate going crazy. You sure do. That's what you've been movies. doing lately. This freaking movie. I can't think of a, here's the, I don't even know where to start with this. And I got a crap load of notes. Think about this though. Kevin Spacey, same year, months apart. Two of the most iconic Hollywood moving end, movie endings of all time with usual suspects, right? The big reveal there. He's Kaiser mm-hmm. Soze. And then you've got this and his master plan. And the fact that and this is one of the, the things that I picked out during the research, and I know you probably found it too, is that mm-hmm. he wasn't even in the the advertisements for this. He's not in the opening credits, Kevin Spacey. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, granted, at the time he wasn't a household name. He had Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross under his belt, and of course, Usual Suspect. But nobody knew how big of a deal that would be at the time. But right. I love how they did that because if you know Kevin, a certain individual is in it, you're going to be looking for him. And I think that was the case. With the, I think it was phone booth with uh, Colin Farrell there. Right. And uh, Kiefer Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland mm-hmm. was like the bad guy, so to speak. And I think he was in the credits, and I think they kind of not hyped it up, but he, he was in like the movie poster and stuff. So you knew kind of who to look out for. In this one, it kind of catches you off guard. But that ending, man, whew, still hits hard, man, all these years later. twenty No, 25 years later. 25 years next month, actually. Yeah. Um, it it uh, debuted uh, in September of, let's see, September 22nd in the United States. So almost a month from now, it'll be 25 years since that movie came out. But you're right. And I think, and it's funny that you and I, well, we watched it, but obviously our listeners listened to it. The actual uh, trailer for the film when we first started out this, this podcast, because so many movies nowadays just give away everything in the trailer. We've talked about that ad nauseum sometimes, but you're right. We don't even see Kevin Spacey in the film or in the trailer, uh, which adds to the awesomeness and his reveal to be the serial killer, John Doe towards, you know, when it comes out in the third act of the film, but you're, I don't know how much it would have mattered because like you said, he literally wasn't, much of a household name 95 which is what is really kind of what kicked off his film career because obviously you have seven you have the usual suspects and then he wins the best supporting actor for that for that particular film and you know that's you know that's his his play into this and but seven you're comes right out before the oscars 
Yes. Seven so comes out before the Oscars. Spacey isn't that household name. Yeah. Mm-mm. Not really. I mean, it's, it's after that that his, his career really started to pick up. So, you know, in, within a couple of years, you've got Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. You have L.A. Confidential and then American Beauty. And then everything kind of snowballs from there. Um, obviously, his legacy is a little bit tainted now, considering everything that's happened in, in the last couple, couple of years with him. But nevertheless, I put him up there as one of the great movie serial killers or movie villains of all time. He's so methodical and slick and persuasive and it's just it, I mean well anyway, well let's get into it let's just talk about this ending or obviously uh, Brad Pitt's de- uh, detective David Mills hold on I gotta ask you this sure I gotta ask you that I'm I'm not sorry for interrupting because this is huge not really. okay this is for the life of me I can always remember whether I've seen a movie in the theater I'm probably if you mm-hmm. named every single movie I could tell you whether or not that I've seen, I could probably tell you every one of them that I've seen in the theater. I can't for the life of me remember the first time I've seen, by the way, I watched this the last week. It was probably only like the third time I've seen it, only because it's really tough. It's kind of a tough watch, especially because you know what's going to happen. It's hard mm-hmm. to watch the Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, romance there when you know it's coming to a freaking crashing, haunting end. So it's a mm-hmm. difficult watch in that regard. So, as I was saying, I don't recall the very first time I watched this. And to piggyback on that, that means I don't remember what my reaction was when I saw that thrilling ending. My theory is the reason why I don't remember that first time is because I get the feeling that I didn't, A, I, didn't, I don't think I saw it at the theater, and B, I probably heard what happened beforehand. So my theory is one of the reasons why I don't remember that shocking ending that first time is because I maybe I I'd got wind of it before and then watched it knowing how it was going to conclude. And that totally, of course, ruins the film. So my question is, do you recall the first time you saw it and how blown away were you? It's kind of the same situation, actually. I did not see this in the theater. I recall wanting to. I was not quite 17 yet. I also didn't have a license, and my mom was not taking me to see that movie. So I remember, I believe I ended up running it and watching it. And I remember being – it's funny because I, I think I remember being blown away by the, the ending, but I almost feel like I'm in the same boat as you. I almost feel like I got wind of how it ended beforehand, but I'm not even sure. But it's funny because as many, as many times as I've seen this film, this ending still hits hard. It still has weight. It still has impact, even though you know what's going to happen. You know that Gwyneth Paltrow's head is going to be in that box, you know, that day, that John Doe's executing that sixth sin of envy. You know, he says, you know, he tried to play the part of a simple man with a simple life. And that is just so – it's so nerve-wracking. It's so unnerving. And to think – that it's it's so funny about the story that this the ending almost didn't even happen that way, because originally what would happen was that the producer um, Mike DeLuca uh, had a new line actually excuse me uh, sent the script to David Fincher the director, but it was not the revised edition. They had had a revised edition without the head in the box scene. They had a more traditional ending, and he gets the script and loves it. And then DeLuca meets with him. And said that there's a lot of internal pressure to not have this head in the box scene, but he says, "Hey, if you if if I produce this movie, we'll stay with a head in the box ending." But even though that happened, one of the other head producers, 
a guy by the name of Arnold Coppelson came in and said, no, you, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this head in the box ending. It's too dark. It's this, it's that, and the other thing. And for to his credit, a young career still, Brad Pitt and also Fincher went to bat and said, listen, if you're not going to do this ending, we're walking away. And they, and they kept it in the film. And to me, it's still one of the best endings in the history of thrillers, period. And I think one of the versions, didn't they want maybe one of Brad Pitt's dog's head heads to be in the box? I thought I heard that somewhere. Like that was one of the possibilities that they kicked around, which wouldn't have had the same impact at all. Even though we Americans love our dogs, we would have been pissed, but it wouldn't have been the same thing. I think it would not have had nearly as much impact. And honestly, now that you mentioned that, this is the first time I'm hearing that that was a possibility as an alternative. I thought it would almost have been a comp cop out and not in line with yeah. the actions of John Doe throughout the entire film, which would have, which have been brutal and also extended to human beings exclusively. So to me, it would have been discordant and not made sense to have it be a dog in this case. But let's talk about the actual, you know, regardless of the fact that the shocking ending of her head in a box being delivered out in the middle of nowhere like that, What's your thoughts, impressions about the actual scene, the actual performances, the give and take between Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt in this final scene? That is, I thought that was just brilliantly put together by Fincher. And really a good question because you've got Brad Pitt, by the way, extremely underrated in this film. I mean, Mm -hmm. we talk about Pitt's career and Seven is mentioned here and there. and He's had so many big hits after that. And this is kind of a steady climb for him. And then all of a sudden, this movie comes along, right? Like before this, it's Legends of the Fall. It's A River Runs mm-hmm. Through It. Uh, Thelma and Louise, his role in that. But I thought he was terrific in this. I mean, he's cocky. He's, 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 he has that, that arrogance, but also, in a way, he's kind of a dick. Like that car ride out there, as much as we don't mm-hmm. like Spacey's character, John Doe, Pitt really like eggs him on a little bit, right? He's telling him to shut up and... You know, he's threatening him. And there's almost, yeah. you're almost now that when you watch it and you know the ending, you're like, dude, just stop. Just yeah. shut up. Like, you, you know how this is going to end. But yeah, I think Pitt does an, an excellent job of just the way he kind of, and I'm doing it here in the Zoom call, the way he kind of, he lets his like hand go loose a little bit as he's holding his gun because he's not really sure what he wants to do. You can feel mm-hmm. that struggle, that tug of war between. There's tense. It's I, I I can't see even better actors out there. I have a hard time imagining. Pick your favorite really good actor. Pick your David, your Daniel Day Lewis, your Hopkins. I have a hard time thinking, and this is maybe a little crazy, that they would do a better job than Pitt of demonstrating that struggle and how he was crying and just a little, just the way he says, you know, what's in the box. You, yeah, you and feel that's his not true. That's true. That's not true. Like you, you could almost see him trying to figure it out right as it happens. And then with Morgan mm-hmm. Freeman running, running to those two, Yep. you know, he's just, that whole setup is just well coordinated and it was fun, fun to watch despite how haunting it is. And it's funny that you it's it's weird that you mentioned that because I actually have I have a very close friend who thinks that this performance by Brad Pitt at the end here with the in, at box thing is one of the worst acting performances in the history. Of no way. He, he thinks it's over the top melodramatic hammy and I couldn't disagree more. I no. think it's so visceral and so 
human and so earnest. I mean, that point where he just the, – the one thing that always strikes me about this final scene when he realizes that John Doe has killed his wife and put his head in a box – um, is that is where he bends over and like is almost like grabbing his stomach. Yeah, so, you know, it's like oh god, oh god, you know. And everybody else, I think, has been in one of those moments, those overwhelming emotional moments where something gets you in the gut, where yeah. you're just like, you've got the, you've basically got the wind knocked out of you. But you're right. I mean, there's this whole range of, of you can see the torture on his face about what is he going to do, and it's almost it's almost childlike in some places where he's you know he's he's just saying like that's not true, that's not true. You know, he you could just see he's become unhinged, uh, and obviously John Doe picked the right person because he executes that final sin of wrath and shoots him in the head. But I love. Morgan Freeman's part in this is like almost like a counterbalance to this. He's trying to keep him cool and collected, but you can even see that Morgan Freeman is unhinged. This is the first time that his Detective Somerset has really this has really kind of shaken his core. Yeah, a guy who's you basically see, seen, yeah, you could see he's rattled here, and he's been cool he's the whole seen, time. He's seen everything in three and a half decades as a police detective, and this is like you said, the first time that he's really really rattled, and he makes that statement. You know, saying that if you do this, if you kill him, he will win. And he just looks over to him. And it's all in that look and that communication that, yes, your wife is dead. Her head is in that box. This guy kneeling before you did this. And now you've got a choice. Good, simple, and, you know, bare bones all- writing, too, because he's got to yes. say. That's, I think that's what, what I would say if I was in that position. It's the only thing you really can say. He wins. you got to make it a scoreboard thing. you got to make it a win-loss thing. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. there's nothing to hold somebody back. Bl- By the way, I, just a small, a small side. I think if that happens in my case, there's no way I'm ending Kevin Spacey's life that quick and easy. Mm-hmm. I don't advocate for torture, but I'm cutting some stuff off. Like, yeah. it's gonna be, I'm not ending it that quick. But let me get back to Brad Pitt really quick because I think it's important. Pitt, I've been a fan mm-hmm. of his since day one, but I'm not af- afraid to admit that there's times where I think Brad Pitt is this is one of my wife's big beefs with him. He's just kind of – he almost seems like he's just Brad Pitt in the role. I mean, yes. even Moneyball, which I loved, and I thought he was good in there. I didn't think he was excellent. I wasn't blown away by his performance. Nope. Even in some of the Ocean's Elevens, I think he's just a cool cat. I'm never super impressed with you know, what he brings to the table. I think it's just – sometimes he's just kind of like a, the good-looking guy. He's almost like a token character sometimes. But when he plays quirky or when he plays a little off-kilter, um, like in um, – oh, my gosh. What's the what's the 12 Bruce Monkeys Lewis one? 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys. I love how fidgety and quirky he is in there. In this, I love how he's – again, not super arrogant, but arrogant enough where – it would take something Herculean and horror for him to kind of come down a few notches, and that's what happens. But, yeah, those final scenes, no way. I think that's you, – you pick Brad Pitt's, like, top five moments. I'm throwing that one in the top three. Yeah, I, it, might, it might arguably even be one, but you make a great point about Pitt is that oftentimes, oftentimes – Probably most of the time when he's in films, he's a movie star. He's not an actor. And that's not – I'm not trying it. to be negative against Brad Pitt because I actually do think he's a very good actor. Yeah. But I think he's more of a movie star than he is than you know like a Daniel Day-Lewis character. There's a very few roles that I've seen him in where I'm like, he is reaching for it. He is – 
honing his craft. This is one of them. 12 Monkeys is another one. Even though the movie's not great, the curious case of Benjamin Button's one, uh, you know, Fight Club to some extent. But there's other movies that he's just a, a movie star. Yeah. That is cannot be the, the, said the case with this. This this final climactic scene is intense. And you can't, you can't again, I know he's had a checkered history now and his, his name's kind of been put for the mud, but you can't deny the acting prowess of Kevin Spacey in these final scenes either. The fact that he's just on his knees you know, trying to impart to them. I'm trying to tell you, I envy you and your wife, Tracy, you know, and the, the, the statement when he says that, you know, she begged for her life and the child with inside her. And he was like, Oh, he didn't know. I mean, it is so creep factor from right. his character. And it's just so brilliantly played. You've got this like triangle of these three people and it's just insane. Insane. I noticed when I watch uh, Spacey, especially like you said, that find that, you know, the, the third act there, the final act. I'm almost seeing some of the other characters he's played retroactively, like morphed into this role. Even though I shouldn't mm-hmm. see those characters, right? Like I, you almost shouldn't see uh, Frank Underwood from House of Cards in this role, right? Or you shouldn't see Kaiser Soze because they're probably filming him at around the same time. Um, mm-hmm. But you do see those characters kind of eke in there, and he's just, and I think too, and he doesn't get enough credit for it in this. He's subtle. He never goes over the top. He never comes off as cartoonish. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. like it's him playing, you know, uh, Hannibal Lecter, which, you know, Silence of the Lambs, let's, let's give that credit. That was kind of like the, the ultimate, not the ultimate, but that really set the tone for psychological thrillers. Uh, I think probably that showed that those can be, you know, super profitable and, you know, a hit at the Oscars. Uh, but Kevin Spacey shows that, like we said, two movies in a row, and he doesn't get a whole lot of screen time. No, but he makes the freaking most of it. What I he does, and what I think is most interesting about his character of John Doe, is that even though he's clearly a psychopath, he doesn't. Although that's you know we'll get into that argument because that's a running argument between Mills and Somerset between uh, through this whole movie are the people just wacky or is this just a you know this is just a common everyday thing that happens it's too dismissive to call them as crazy but what's funny especially that you know i realized on the real rewatch that that car ride that they take to the final place where he gets the head delivered in, in a box you know he he's there's so many interesting moments of things that he says that ring true, even though he's a vile, evil person. You know what I'm saying? Getting people to listen, you can't just tap them on the shoulder anymore. You've got to hit them with a sledgehammer. And that comment about he's like, we see a common sin, uh, a, a deadly sin on every street corner every day, and we tolerate it. And we tolerate it because it's normal. And you know, as vile and evil as a person that he is as a character in this film, he's 100% right. So still, glad, 25, so glad you said that. 25 I, years later. Because think about that, it this People, I mean, think about it this way. You know, people, I've said that to people like, oh, that's crazy. He's a blah, 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 blah. I was like, take what he said and put it into the words of your pastor or a priest or somebody that you, re- or your you favorite revere politician. on television or your favorite politician. It's not going to sound crazy coming from them. No. It's going to sound very sane. Well, and I think that's what adds a little more weight to his role in his performance. And it's great writing in that regard, too, is that they threw something like that in there. They didn't just make him a cartoon. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that you find yourself agreeing with him. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's, I think that's kind of the hook. That's what hooks I think- you in. 
that is what hooks you in. It's, it's his persuasiveness. Where you can agree with some of his sentiments, and I do, but I obviously don't agree with his methods <laughs> in, in any way, shape, or form. And I love the way Morgan Freeman kind of puts it, which is like the ultimate you know, Socratic-like comeback where he's like, yeah, but you're taking – what does he say? You're taking joy in these crimes, right? Like you're taking pleasure right. in this. So that shouldn't – like that kind of goes against what you're saying. Right. And I liked how he's they like, had that chosen, little back and forth. If, right. if you were chosen that you're not choosing to do this, why are you taking pleasure in it? You know, yeah. and then he comes, like as ever, comes back with and says, I in doubt I enjoyed it as much as Detective Mills would enjoy five minutes alone in a room with no windows with me. And it's, you know, he's, he's so slick in, in making comments like that, but it, he's right. And that's kind of, you know, one of the themes of David Fincher Films, who directed this movie, is the the nature of humanity, the nature of, of good and evil. Um, you know, if it's something that's inherent, is it something that's learned? You know, he's he's very philosophical um, in his in his in his tone, in his text, in his approach to, to filmmaking. It's almost mathematical in some instances. And that can be seen very much of this whole film. It's very, very intellectual. I mean, you're talking, you know, there's references to Dante um, and I'm trying to think what else and Paradise Lost and, all, you know. Somerset obviously is this meticulous guy, Morgan Freeman's character of Somerset, meticulous guy who does all this research. I mean, and every this very highly intelligent, it's a thinking man's thriller. As gruesome as it can be and as bloody as it can be, it's definitely a thinking man's thriller. And I like the touch of Brad Pitt getting the Cliff's notes of those books. It's hilarious. Like That's hilarious. Put that in there. They could have just showed Morgan Freeman the quintessential library studying scenes. And instead, they're like, you know what? Let's make it. And Fincher, shout out to him. I mean, look at he gets, you know, he loses his confidence and he gets he gets his freaking balls busted hardcore with the third alien. Yep. And then this is the comeback shot, right? I mean, he shoots a shot here, and I got to give him major props on. And I had totally forgotten about this scene. That chase scene in the middle of the movie. Absolutely incredible, exhilarating. It might be, I'm trying to think of a better chase scene for me where I was so immersed in kind of not only the plot itself, but how it was shot, where you really feel like you're Brad Pitt. You're looking around the corners. You're waiting for like a gunshot, a bullet whizzing by you, a punch to the head. It wasn't just the classic, well, he's gaining on him. He's gaining on him. Boom, he's got him. You didn't know where. It was very kind of claustrophobic, but at the same time, you're seeing these dark figures running through alleys. Is that Kevin Spacey? Is that him over there? And the way they framed that and the way they shot that, just the intensity and the rain and the city, it's bleak. It's that constant that rain in this bar. movie. <laughs> yeah, constant freaking rain. I mean, we're, are they in London in this? Uh, yep. But, yeah, that scene was just – I couldn't believe how I had forgotten about how just incredible uh, Fincher pulled that one off. It's tense. I mean, it's so tense. I mean, there's points where people get bumped around, they're limping, you know, there's rain, there's, there's, like you said, there's shadows. And you talked about one of the things you, you talked about here was the actual visual style, the flair of it. And one of the things I learned about Fincher as a director um, that he brings to his films is that he usually he really uses utilizes the idea of tilt pan and track in the camera movements. So basically, when a, a character is in motion or expressing emotions, the camera moves at the exact same speed and direction as their body. 
So, and there's, it's a constant choreography that's going on between the actors and the camera operators. And the, his idea in that case is to draw you in to understand those feelings. And the scene that you're particularly talking about absolutely has that result. You, you get the intensity. You get the, the heart rate. You get how, how deadly a game of cat and mouse this is in, in, this, in this race um, to, try to, to try to track this guy down and get this guy you know, down as, as John Doe. Um, and that's kind of the master craftsman coming in, in, into play here for, that, it, for that, that effect. You can look at it in any section, in any film that he really much does. But you're right. You know, I want to go back to something else that you, you mentioned, too, that's really a key thing to harp on. As you talked about the debacle with Alien 3, he, after that, he went back to doing commercials. And by the time he read the script for Seven, he hadn't read a script, I think they said, in like 18 months. He famously made the quote, I would rather go through colon cancer than do another movie. <laughs> and, and, and somehow he comes back. He, they're able to talk him in to get him into this film and do this film and thank the cinema gods for that because I can't imagine a, a cinema landscape where we don't have the films of David Fincher. The movie is methodical. That's part of the charm for me. And the same goes for Zodiac. I actually liked Zodiac, I think, a little bit better. Well, and it's a little more palatable, right? You don't have to deal with <laughs> that ending. But I love the fact that they, we talk about it a lot. We talked, it was always a big thing in, in, uh, in TV news. And I know you probably recall from our radio days at SUNY Brockport, but the importance of letting a scene breathe or letting a moment breathe. You don't need to rush. There doesn't have to be a, a cut every three seconds like we're watching those old MTV videos. And they really do that here. They, they give you just enough clues. They give you as much clues as they feel they need you to have at that moment. Um, and really, it's like that, that kind of methodical slow burn, I think, adds to it. So you as the viewer, you're playing detective in your own mind, right? You're trying to solve this crime. And I know when I watch a movie, I try to pretend like I'm watching it for the first time, almost like vicariously through someone who I want them to see the movie as well. Like I know my good mm -hmm. buddy, Jason Cook, I know he hasn't seen this movie. Almost 90% sure he hasn't seen it. So when I rewatch it, I'm almost pretending like he's in the room with me. So in a weird way, I can experience the movie kind of like for the first Vicariously. time. Yeah. Right? Like, because otherwise, if you're just watching the movie you've seen so many times, you're almost mm -hmm. not as immersed as you would be if you had seen it for the first time. So, but that really draws you in. And there's so much great plotting and just the, um, just the slow unravel of clues you mentioned you mentioned it often letting a scene breathe but it's you're 100% correct in this instance what we, what we're going through here because there's so many moments that David Fincher lets the silences speak for themselves i mean to be quite honest and that's heavily he says his one you know he never went to film school he says most heavily influenced uh, director of all time though was Alfred Hitchcock and it's absolutely present here i mean if you look at just the setup of Somerset for first it introduced him. You see him getting it up in the morning. You see him laying out his clothes. You see him getting meticulously ready. You see him take a little piece of lint off of his, his suit jacket. You know that this guy is meticulous, methodical, exacting, precise, logical, calculating, and you get all this information without a word being said. It's almost exactly like the opening moments of Rear Window. You know everything about Jimmy Stewart's character within the first five minutes of that film, and nobody has said a freaking word. 
I mean, that's why movies are a visual medium that can be great in that instance. Um, and that's what, which, what sets the tone here. You know, he, for all his quirks and foibles, because some people don't like to work with David Fincher, they think he's a fucking asshole. Because he, I mean, I don't know if you've done the research, but I mean, he does take after take after take after take. Rooney Mara did a take with him on the social network, and she's in the film for, I think, two scenes 90 times. <laughs> I mean, really? it drove it drove it seventy something times in Zodiac. Drove Jake Gyllenhaal bug shit. Arlie Ermey, Arlie who's in this movie in Seven, notoriously said Fincher doesn't want actors; he wants puppets. You know, he just he he will go to the length. He took eleven hours to film a nine minute scene for Mindhunter. I mean, he just he will not stop until he gets what he wants. He said notorious, and I don't necessarily agree with the statement. He's like, after about take seventeen, the earnestness falls away. I hate earnestness in acting. I want it to be natural and real. And that's just the kind of director he is, man. I mean, he chooses natural light. You see that definitely in this film and throughout the course of his movie. Sinatra would hate this guy. Supposedly he liked to just go in there and knock it out. Sinatra would have murdered David Fincher. He would have cut him with a knife. He wants to. I think as an actor, I would enjoy that to a point. I could see. I could see a number of takes to get it right. I, I, I appreciate the perseverance in that regard. But I think at some point, I could see it ruining an actor's, I guess it's a feel type of thing, right? Like I could mm-hmm. see it ruining an actor's motivation or just if it affects their patience, if it affects their yeah. ability to hit that scene, I could see them saying, you know what, this is just, we're going overboard. But it's probably a feel thing. I mean, maybe some guys can knock it out of the park, others can't. Yeah, and I, I think as an actor now, in Hollywood, you know, with David Fincher having established himself for the last two decades or so, you got to know what you're getting into when you go into a David Fincher film. You know, this is, you got to know at this point, hey, you're going to be doing dozens of takes for one scene. You're going to be, this shoot is going to last longer than normal shoots just because this is the type of dude that he is. And either you're going to be down with that or you're not. You know, Brad Pitt has done, I think, three films with him now. Um, I'm, I'm hope maybe someday he'll, he'll do another, but I'm sure that there's, there's actors, probably Jake Gyllenhaal is one of them. That's like, nah, I want it done. I'm good. I don't need to go through this anymore. It makes you wonder, like we, we, we praised that final scene there with Pitt and it makes you wonder if how many times they had to do some of those scenes. Mm-hmm. I'd like to know that. I, I don't know if you found that in your research at all. I don't, I didn't see that, but man, I can't that. imagine, I can't imagine getting, going to that emotional level for 50 takes no I, that's I just what i mean there's no way you couldn't do it well speaking of slow burn i wanted to bring that up too is the per- most perfect example probably in this movie is that final really i felt like the the final 30 minutes i mean by the time kevin spacey turns himself in that whole next like half hour 40 i don't know how how long that was that was the ultimate kind of slow burn because they they have kevin spacey just totally not hyping up, but hinting at what's to come, hinting at what's to come. And you as the viewer are trying to figure out what could he possibly, are they going to, are they going to ambush the detectives? Does he have right. like some kind of bomb ready to go off? Is That's why I, I wish help I could remember the first time I freaking watched this, but I can't. And it's got to be because I had heard about it before and you were just waiting for the ending, but I would love to be in the room with somebody who hasn't seen it and then kind of pause and go, all right, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think that there's going to be like some kind of ambush? Like how is, cause you know, the way they set it up, you know, it's not going to be a matter of, well, Pitt and, and Freeman are going to avoid disaster. Like, you know, something big is going to happen. 
And just right. the, the and, setup of that, the truck coming in with the package and, you know, the handheld camera from the, the helicopter with the snipers up there with John frickin' mm-hmm. McGinley up there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just, ah, uh, the way and they him, set that up is just brilliant. Him even coming out of the car with all blood in his hands all over his shirt. And yeah. And it's such, I mean, that's not how moves like this are spo- detective procedurals or whatever, which I even really think you can call that. That's an insult to call it that. This is not how that's supposed to go. The killer is not supposed to turn himself in with two, Excellent two point. murders in his masterpiece not yet finished. So when uh, that happens, I, I think I remember at that point going, whoa, this is a curveball. Where are, we, where are we going with this? And it's I, I, when it's that point when he actually turns himself in that I think that Mills and Somerset are suddenly on the same page because he's he you know he's kind of learned a little bit from him and from this person and he, he turns to Somerset and he says this isn't over he wouldn't just stop he's he's caught because he want he turned himself in because he wanted to turn himself in and there he and so it's like for the first time you and I are in total agreement. Um, and it's such – you think about this, and you think about how brilliantly elaborate his plan was, and you really – I'm saying we don't – we haven't even mentioned his name once, but you really got to credit Andrew Kevin Walker's script in this. Yeah, the script call. in this is, 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 is brilliant, and he, he's mostly been – uh, known as a script doctor he hasn't written a lot of original scripts he did eight millimeter and i forget that there's another one but this is the one he's most famous for and he wrote it you know he's it's inspired by his time in new york city which he hated new york city he said i hated every moment of being in new york city it's funny they never they but, never even mentioned that this is new york city but you know if you've been there if you've seen it on tv or in a movie it's clearly the big apple but i kind of like how they don't mention it it's almost like the it's almost like a um you know, it could be any American city is kind of That's in a weird way what they're saying. Thank you. Thank you for, for, for highlighting that because I, I, I think some people fail to realize that. Like I – yes, you could make the case it's New York City, but you could make the case that this is San Francisco or Los Angeles or Boston. Yeah, it's raining all the time, but that happens in Seattle. That happens in San Francisco. Another thing is the fact that, yeah, you think it's New York City. It's probably New York City. Yeah, it's most definitely New York City. And then the ending happens, and suddenly they're out in the middle of a desert. Right. And last time I checked, there's no deserts outside New York City. <laughs> shot, in ca- shot in California. Yeah, my, it, it is weird, though. I don't really think about it, even though I know it's shot in California. It does have that New York City feel. And I think – I wonder if some of it was shot in New York City. I mean, I think some of the cars – I thought I saw online that if you look closely at a couple of places, maybe on a, a taxi cab or a police car, maybe it says NYPD or something like that, but – it's very subtle or – but they, he clearly goes out of his way. I mean, look, at anytime somebody shoots a movie in New York City and they want you to know it's in New York City, you'll know, right? There's always the – you know, before, you know, 2001, there was always that shot of the Twin Towers. There's always a shot of the Empire State Building or you see Brooklyn Bridge is featured prominently in a lot of movies. But in this one, they kind of make it uh, ubiquitous. Is that the word? But, yeah, just the, the mood that Fincher creates here. Is really has that like that kind of noir setting. And shout out, did we mention cinematographer uh, Darius Kanji, who's worked with him no. before? Um, He's amazing in this. He was amazing in this. I mean, this is one of those movies where I think the cinematography really grabs you. Like it's memorable. It's not a case of there's yeah. there's been other movies we've we've talked about in the podcast, and you know we we we've mentioned the cinematographer, but in some of those cases, and I'm not gonna name names here for the movies. It's anybody could have shot it. I think in some cases it's the director's call. But in this case, mm-hmm. I think the cinematographer, uh, Darius Kanji, 
definitely deserves some propers, and we're giving them to him, damn it. Yeah, he the, without his cinematography, I don't think this film works as well. It ties in directly with Howard Shore's score, which is absolutely freaking brilliant and moody and dreary and deadly and just so – I mean, there are points where the music just encapsulates the scene in such a major way. But you're right, Kanji's cinematography is excellent, and what it, it kind of – what it kind of captures to go back to your other point about, you know, this could be any city, but even, even though it, it implies that it is New York city, I think that's the whole point that this type of situation could happen in any city. John Doe could be in any city. And for the actual design of where they filmed Fincher worked with the guy, a production designer named Arthur Max. Um, he, he wanted to create this kind of dismal world that kind of reflected the inhabitants um, he, he, quoted, he, he was quoted as saying, he created a setting that reflects the moral decay of the people in it. Everything is falling apart. Nothing is working properly. And that's definitely the case here. To your point about this possibly being New York, there's actually a sign at some point that says New York Pizza. But ironically, that restaurant is located in Los Angeles. So again, I, I, that's, that's just kind of the overall uh, I know that final scene atmosphere. with Spacey and out in the field and the uh... – the whatchamacallit, like the power poles. That was definitely mm -hmm. in, in California. Cause I oh, remember, for sure. I remember being curious to where that was. Like, is that a, you know, a, a big movie buff destination, right? There's always those famous areas, like the, the final beach scene in um, Oregon, where Goonies was, where Goonies concluded, right? Where, like, the pirate ship was. A lot of people go there and snap photos. And I was wondering, what well, is this a case where people go? And I guess they, it sounded like they worked in more of those power poles on that like huge dirt road just to make mm -hmm. it seem maybe a little bit more imposing or add a little bit more character. But really there was only like a few of those power poles out there. But yeah, I'm always interested to see where a movie was shot. The power poles thing, it's an interesting point you bring up because- Is that even what you call even, them? Is that what it is? A power pole? I think so. I guess I we'll sure. It, darn it. We're, sure, we're not we're not power pole experts, so I got a power pole. No, no, no. Um, so the I mean, it's funny because even with all the, the where it's located with all those power poles, even though they're out out in this flat land that should be open, you still get that oppressiveness. You still almost get that claustrophobia that's a present throughout the this entire film. Because you don't I mean I don't know if you felt this way, but there's almost this like closeness to everything like you can feel the grimness and the grime around you and obviously that's by intention but it's amazing that he's able to even encapsulate that even when it's outdoors under the sun which is honestly i think the only scene in this entire film that features the sun well and just not a, that's a great call not a lot of colors i mean there's not a lot of reds not a lot of like uh, carolina blues or oranges and one of the neat things that i kind of picked up on was well, not picked up on but picked up while researching it was this whole process of what they call i guess bleach bypass where they basically manipulate the film to take out certain colors and highlight others and that helps it give it that grimy kind of depressing look which fincher's kind of been known for over the years yeah and you're right that's that's an excellent take in terms of how this film is is looks and presented uh it's also you know it's just as prevalent you know if we will play new fight club at some point but it's just as prevalent there as well and you're right that's 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 by choice by david fincher and the people that he worked with because he what he likes to use is what's called red digital cameras that kind of helps along with that and he uses a lot of natural or pre-existing light conditions he doesn't like to have those elaborate light setups um, two of them because he feels like 
in his mind, it's much more of a normal aspect. It kind of reflects life because most of us don't have elaborate lighting setups. So we have we have our natural light. Gwyneth Paltrow's role in this film on the on the rewatches. Now that we know what happens to her, it almost feels and i'm curious about what your take is on this is it obvious on the re it's hard to word here is it obvious now that like she's gonna die or that something brutal is gonna happen i mean they talk about her bringing the baby in the world into the world and not like i i I like how they incorporate her in the background because they need to introduce you to who she is like you have to feel like someone you know has been taken from you so they have to introduce her. And that's probably why they have like the dinner, right? With her, Brad Pitt, and they invite Morgan Freeman over. And then they have the little chats where like Peltro and Freeman are at the diner and she's talking to him about, yep. you know, should I tell Brad Pitt about, you know, the baby? Does it seem obvious in retrospect that she's a goner or is that just kind of a ridiculous hindsight is 2020 thought? I don't think it's obvious at all because I've seen this so many times and the ending still has so much impact for me that it almost is almost still unexpected. Like I don't know why I didn't see it coming because right? we're, we're we're brought in so to you know we really connect to this character. She's maybe the most sympathetic of the entire cast because we you know we've all we've all been in that situation where we've been in in a new area or someplace we've moved that's new or whatever, and we're just not fit in. Things don't seem right. You know you know whatever it may be. And she's kind of endearing. She has that beautiful smile. She kind of just draws you in. And then to have that kind of innocence stamped out at the end is just such a gut punch. But it's funny. I just I, – I, I don't feel like – I still feel like I don't – like, oh, should I have seen that coming? I, I just didn't expect it. And I don't know why I didn't because there's such obvious – now it seems a little obvious. Yeah. Yes. Right. And it's funny. And I – you know, we talk about actors playing certain roles. You know, that's one of the main – when I think of Gwyneth Paltrow, that's one of the first roles that pops into my mind. And she only got it because actually Christina Applegate turned it down. Yeah, that wouldn't have worked I, at all, I don't think. Yeah. There were some, you know, some heavy hitters that were at one time associated uh, with this with this production. Al Pacino was set to play Somerset. He turned it down for City Hall. Robert Duvall and Gene Hackman were in the role play for that too. Uh, Mills at one point was supposed to be played by Denzel Washington. He turned it down. Uh, he says that's one of the ones he really regrets was turning that one down. Yeah. Um, but but this one had a lot of attractiveness to it. But her 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 role and her part in this I don't think can be under you know it can't be overstated. You know she kind of gets lost in the mix sometimes. But her she's very important and vital to the foundation and the fabric of this movie. Yeah. The whole I mean this is definitely a parable on morality this whole Mm -hmm. film and she's kind of that narrator in a sense but yeah her death and the way they set it up the way they like the breadcrumbs right the breadcrumb clues that kind of set up her demise i just thought was brilliant because i feel like if you're fincher and you show too much of her or if you show a scene where maybe john doe kevin spacey is maybe outside their apartment where you see a shadowy figure if you get any sense that Spacey knows a little bit more about Brad Pitt's, you know, the detective's personal life than maybe he should. It spoils the ending of the film. But they show those photos in his place, so you know maybe he's been doing a little bit of research, and that helps mm-hmm. set it up. That makes it believable. Because otherwise, you're like, you would think, there's no way. How does Spacey, but we saw him, right? remember we see him in the um, 
uh, the hallway as the fake photographer. And you kind of mm-hmm. know that was like supposed to be spacey, right? Especially on the rewatch because they never show his face. So yep. kinda really- How do they get here so fast? Right, right, right. Yeah, and that, that's brilliant too, especially on the rewatch because it's like, oh, holy shit, that's him. So I yeah. think they do. I think Fincher, you got to give him credit for that too, is the way he sets that up. So, I mean, you by having those pictures that they find in his apartment of Mills and Somerset, well, specifically Mills, obviously, in this case, you're like, okay, now you know that there's like a personal connection going on between yeah. these two detectives. So suddenly it's not just, it's like sermons. You know, obviously it's, it's given for, Lots of people, obviously, answer, but there's also sometimes a specific audience in mind. And by the end of this film, these are the Mills and Somerset, Morgan Freeman and and uh, Brad Pitt's characters are the ones. They're the captive audience. Um, but you you make a brilliant point, Luke, is the idea that it's just enough to make what happens to her, to Gwyneth Paltrow's character believable in itself, but it's not too much that it gives away the ending too quickly. And it's 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 interesting that you know when he first is taking those pictures and Mills basically says you know M I L S fuck off and you know Morgan Freeman says you know they pay you know how's like how do they get here so fast Morgan Freeman's character Summers says they pay good money to, you know get tips or whatever and then that comes back around at the end of the film where he says it's amazing the information you can purchase um, at a police department and how easy you know how and how cheaply it's just so chilling you know those words just rolling off his tongue as a callback to like that and 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 it also points to morgan freeman's character again being you know decades in the game he knows all the tricks right he knows where the the you know no pun intended the bodies are buried so he knows that something (laughs) like that could happen but yeah that um just the setup of that is i mean it's tough to set up an ending like that you've got a You've got to walk on edge eggshells to not give things away. I would have loved to be Fincher in that theater on that like initial showing, right? Like the big premiere in Hollywood and just to see the reaction on people's faces in the theater. Yeah, it must have been something. Uh, but you mentioned something that I did want to bring up because we really haven't talked about it is the actual the conversation of morality that's going on in this movie. Because I think anybody to look at Seven and think, oh, it's just a simple thriller is way too dismissive. There's a, yes. there's a lot of philosophical conversations going on between Somerset, between Mills, between um, – you know, between uh, Doe, you know, the idea they say that he's pre- he's preaching to us because this is a real question that really comes up. And I think the crux of it comes down between Mills and Somerset, where Mills just kind of, you know, dismisses, you know, John Doe's actions and other people like, oh, he's a wacko. He, you know, he's crazy. He's Looney Tunes, you know, all this other stuff where Mills is just like, no, some of this stuff is starting to become commonplace. And you can't be dismissive and say that this is this, this guy is just crazy and because if you're doing that, then you're ignoring the fact that some of this is a baser route to some of the systemic problems of society in general. That people's moral structure has started to decay and, and, and go down. You know, it's like at one point he says in the film, Summer said, I don't even recognize this, this place anymore. And I think to, to be dismissive and say, oh, these guys are just whack jobs and this and that and the other thing. It, it makes it an easy excuse to not address some of the moral problems and moral conundrums that are present in our everyday world. At least that's my takeaway was from it. I agree. And I think, sadly, I think this movie gets overlooked for being 
as a smart and intelligent thriller because of that shocking ending. Mm-hmm. It's a gift and a curse, I believe, that that ending is the movie's legacy. It's a gift because, well, it's obvious. It's an impeccable ending and shock twist. But the curse is that I think people, they know how it ends. Do they want to put up with, it's like, why do you want to put up with two hours of this movie when you know how it's going to end? Well, you put up with it because it's not putting up with it. You appreciate how smartly it was created. I mean, from the writing to the plotting, we've talked about it. Even, again, the the underrated performance by Brad Pitt uh, in this. It's just not being like the good-looking hunk on screen. Like, he's got some, Mm -hmm. there's some depth there. So I think that's definitely, sadly, part of its legacy is the fact that not only is this one of the best endings in Hollywood history, it's you've got an intelligent, smart thriller that's going to get overlooked because of that ending, sadly. Yeah, and, and, and that's unfortunate because you're right. That's the thing that everyone remembers from Seven is, is that ending. But the build Give it another shot, and, folks. Yeah, given like the, if you there is so much to glean so many things great things you can pick up because like i you know i rarely think the movie is a perfect movie this is one of those perfect movies for me this thing is so airtight and so meticulous and keep that you know to david fincher that that's just the way things are this i noticed in this case mills is is loves basketball uh, clearly in in this movie he's wearing a basketball tie in a scene right after that that i never even picked up on i didn't until, until this, you this just mentioned it and and you know i've i've seen uh, this movie before, but yeah, you can't, you know, I, I, I kind of hate that. I hate the fact that the ending is almost taken away um, from the, the intricacy of the rest of the film. And what's interesting to me is the fact that, you know, people are like, Oh, it's too brutal. It's too gruesome. Yes. It's gruesome, but you never really see them. You never see the actual murders themselves. And that's why it's you such... always see the after effect. That's why it's the psychological all... aspect is so big. Yes. Here. Yes, because it's almost like the dark places in your mind are scarier than any image you can put on the screen. I mean, I think the mo- one of the most harrowing ones is the lost one, where you know they they find the guy that has that metal razor dildo slapped to his his body, and he was guy put a you know John Doe put a gun in his mouth and told him to fuck the prostitute. You never see that act ever happen. It's just the after effects. But like, in your mind, gosh. you could just you are imagining the horrors. I mean, it's the same thing for everything. The, the lawyer who gets his pound of flesh, the guy who overate himself to death, the woman who cut, who cut themselves up. You never see Gwyneth Paltrow get her head get de- decapitated. It's all the psychological aspect, as you beautifully pointed out, that plays into the dynamics of how great this movie is. And so many we talk about it a lot is some of these movies. It's such a composite of brilliant decisions, right? There's like the directing and the movie making uh, and what to leave in and what to leave out. And just the fact that we don't see really anything about how Kevin Spacey like plots this stuff out adds to the mystery of his crimes. That's the kind of filmmaker that David Fincher is. Um, and, you know, it's, it's these little touches that these little moments, you know, the, what's that something about the, the devils in the details, you know, the same situation here. I mean, Fincher's in the details. He, he doesn't think that the smallest thing is, is insignificant uh, in this case and couldn't see that throughout the course of this entire film. But I love it when they go into that apartment and they just talk about a, the, like the, 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 whatchamacallit, the, um, cabinet of dr Kilgary or whatever it is just ugh, just so evil and terrifying and you see the it in devil's all those living room right yeah seriously 
and and you see, I mean, it's you just kind of get an insight into to his mind, and you never really see like he's John Doe by choice, as they say in the film. You never really know him. Is he more brilliant than Hannibal Lecter? Now that would I don't be know off for the ages. Those two. That's a debatable question. Uh, I don't know. I I can't give you an answer to that. <laughs> here's another here's another question regarding the ending because I heard that one of the possibilities that they toyed with was do you cut the movie right after Brad Pitt blows away Kevin Spacey and kind of fade out after that maybe a few moments or do you cut it where they do where you see Brad Pitt in the back of a car kind of driving away what do you do you think that that final kind of ending works that fade away or is it better if they're in the big field and Spacey's you know laying in a pool of his blood so you know having having you tell tell me that i think that either one of those endings i think i think the ending you offered where it would have just cut to black after he shot him i think that still could have worked because you still have that visceral gut punch holy crap i can't believe i just watched i watched situation but at the same time i do like the ending we get if for no other reason then you see, you know, you see that thousand islands, thousand yard stare of Brad Pitt in the back of the police car, and Captain Arlie Ermey's character is the captain saying, you know, we'll take care of him, and he's like, where are you gonna be? And you know, he's it, Summer says, around, I'll be around. You know, it's the idea that he's going to stay because it's almost like for every John Doe, there has to be that Somerset around that he's like, what Brad Pitt maybe said earlier is is that he loves what he does in some case he was made for this kind of work and there's a life goes on aspect on that end too it almost has that like end of an episode of nypd blue or law and order where okay life goes on what what kind of what happens next there's more crime to be solved and you know arrests to be made in this crazy metropolis and and what's great is i really like how the the how the film ends with the voiceover it says Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine face worth fighting for. I believe in the second part. And no, and then it just ends. Um, I just, it's, it's, I just love that. There's something about that ending with the ending on that quote that just, I just love that. Um, and it's so weird. A little that dose it of optimism the in the end, right? Like yeah. of all the shit you just saw out of two and a half hours or whatever, we're going to give you a little sprinkle of hope, a little sliver for you as you exit yeah, the, the theater in depression. Obviously, obviously, <laughs> Somerset still yeah, total depression. No, but total, totally, you know, Somerset still thinks, hey, it's still worth fighting for. That's why he's still going to be around. And it's so, it's so funny that it cuts to the credits and then the credits go backwards. I always forget that that happens. Yeah, at the end. that threw me off too. Final thoughts on Seven before we get to our newest segment. I just, it's just, it, it amazes me how how well this movie holds up. 25 years later, how well the themes hold up, how well the message holds up, um, and sadly, in some ways, how little the world has changed. And it's, it's, you know, I hate to say, I don't want to see it being on my high horse and say moral depravity, but, you know, because, you know, there's, there's always the opportunity to look for something good in the world. You know, take the negative and turn it into positive. I truly Amen. do believe Amen that. To that. But, but there's, there's, you know, you, you, can't, you can't deny that there's still some impact that this 
movie has. And only one other thing I would probably like to say is that there is actually some decent moments of le- levity in this in this movie. You know, like the the where you mentioned the whole, uh, you know, him getting Mills getting the Cliff's notes and him just going fucking Dante, and the other two where. Um, you know, there if they fall asleep on each other, and he early, early comes by and goes like, "Wake up, Wonder Twins!" And the one that kill, the one that just cracks me up every time, and I don't even know why, and I don't even know if this was planned or not, is that where the three of them are talking. Arlie Ermey's character, the captain there, um, Mills and Somerset, and he's where Arlie Ermey's sitting. The phone rings, and he picks, he picks up the phone. He goes, "Hold on a second, Picks up, and says, "This isn't even my desk," and then, like hangs up the phone. For some reason, that just cracks me up every time. So lest you think that there's absolutely no levity in this movie, there actually are some moments of choking. <laughs> My quick one little more thought is on this film. It's nice not seeing people on their freaking cell phones constantly. That's always a nice that's always a nice little touch when I watch a movie pre, you know, two thousand two is people aren't on their freaking phones all the time and if they get in a jam they can't just call nine one one from their pocket. Like they actually gotta, you know, make some effort to they gotta be resourceful. So um, right. All right. Hey, that uh, that wraps up our discussion on seven. But don't go anywhere, folks, because we got our new segment. And Corey, this has been a big hit between me and you so far in the last couple episodes. So I think I think it has. And for number three, I, I've got some. I've got some feedback from people that said they really liked in this segment too. That you know the couple listeners that we have. But ladies, once ladies and gentlemen, once again, it's time for Luke and Corey's WRL. What are we watching, reading, and listening to? So I'll start it out with you, Mr. Mayo. What are you watching this week? This is crazy. I rewatched Last Jedi a couple nights ago. I don't know why. I've been kind of anti Star Wars since Rise of Skywalker. Not because I was super disappointed in it or anything like that, regardless of what I thought. It was just kind of a, you know what? Star Wars is kind of done for a while. So I'm not going to put much hope into that universe. And I'm kind of done with it. We've kind of wrapped it up. We've put a nice little bow on things. I'll just wait around until The Mandalorian. I watched Last Jedi again the other day. And I know we bitch a lot about how they should have had a scene where Luke Skywalker whoops us some ass one more time, right? We waited all those years since, what, 1983, Return of the Jedi for Luke. And we wanted to see, just to give us a little taste, give us something. We didn't get it. But other than that, I must say, I don't know if it was just the mood I was in or what. It might be my favorite Star Wars film of all time. Maybe even better than Empire Strikes Back. From start to finish, if you take away all your expectations and just live in that world for that two and a half hours, I'm telling you, I think years from now that might be, that might rival Empire. That's what See, I want. I, I can't you know, there are the, back up. I don't know. Let's relitigate this shit all over again. No, I mean, you make it, you make some good points. There's people that I know that are lifelong Star Wars fans that say it's my favorite, and there's ones that I say ones that I know that say it's the absolute worst film of the Star Wars series, period, and they hate it. And I, I've said this, you know, it's it's a movie that I think we can delve in and have a podcast on its own at some point and just talk about and just get it all out there. I'll say this about the Last Jedi. It's a film I really. I really do like it's right up there. It's definitely not my favorite. I go Empire, uh, Return of the Jedi, and I think maybe this one after it. But my thing is this at the very least, no matter how you feel about Last Jedi, love it or hate it in the road, no matter at the very least, at the absolute minimum, The Last Jedi is a provocative film. Yes. It, it, it generates discussion, debate, um, you know, and, and talk. And I think that's what some of the best cinema out there does. 
Um, so it, kudos to you to, to rewatching it again. Yeah, thank you, sir. And what anything you else you watch besides that? Oh, no, okay. That was, that so, was the big one. That was the big one. So, so for me, I've watched, got to watch two 2020 films this week. I watched uh, The Invisible Man uh, with um, Elizabeth Moss. Uh, played the, in that character, and it's very much a modern take um, on the Invisible Man story by H.G. Wells, very much more of a woman who's kind of in, a, in an abusive trap relationship with her scientist husband, who in this case it's not a potion but uh, um, an actual like a, a costume. But the film uh, by director Lee Winnell, excellent film. I'd probably give it about an 8.5. The performance by Moss is great. The ending is a little bit... Um, kind of expected um, in, in some instances, but overall, very solid film. The other movie that I watched this week that I absolutely loved uh, was Spike was Spike Lee's uh, Defy Bloods um, that's on Netflix about uh, uh, four uh, African-Americans, Vietnam War vets, who go back um, you know, it's, it's set in, in this in 2020. They go back uh, to Vietnam to get the remains of their departed fr- of their, their friend Norman Norman, uh, who was played by Chadwick Boseman in this, and also to get like twenty million dollars worth in these gold, uh, gold um, bullion. Basically, they you know that that was, was from the government, and they want to give it back and get a cut. And it is just a power. This is a Spike Lee film through and through. It's a powerhouse performances. Delroy Lindo absolutely owns this freaking movie. It's one of the best I've seen this year. Sometimes gets a little overly preachy and on the nose, but you know, Spike can do that as, as only as only Spike does, but it's raw, it's visceral, it's in your face, it takes chances, it's emotionally resonant. There are some some scenes that just like holy fuck that I'm are so just jealous. really stayed with me. I'm so it's, jealous of you because this is the one Spike Lee movie I haven't seen yet. And it's it's eating me up inside. And one of the most – it's really it's, – it's worth it. And, and what's one of the most interesting choices that he makes as a director – don't blow the dump, ending. I won't blow the ending. The most interesting choice he makes is that Chadwick Boseman's character uh, is that in the flashback scenes uh, that are set in Vietnam, in the actual Vietnam War, the roles of the characters are not played by younger actors. They're played by the same older actors. So Delroy Lindo is playing his character at 20 as he is at 70. Huh. But it, it works. It's weird, but it works, and you don't even think about it after the first scene. Um, wow. It's almost the anti-Irishman in, in that case. The other thing that I've been watching, uh, is, ironically, is I've finally gotten back into The Flash, the C, the um, CW television show it's it has a lot more it's fun to watch it's just really cool um and it's it has a lot more uh emotional resonance than i remember so i'm like in the season i've stopped at season four i ended up finishing season four i'm on a season five um so that's what i'm watching so next up mr mayo what are you reading just got a really good book out of the library today well i don't i don't know if it's good yet but uh it's been recommended by a bunch of ceos and entrepreneurs that, you know, we, we learn about in the media, of course, uh, a little something called Atomic Habits, which kind of breaks down by a guy named James Clear wrote it. It's supposed to help you, you know, whether it's like losing weight or maybe if you want to get good at photography or become a better, I don't know, hockey player. He breaks down what it takes to really implant those habits into your daily life. But uh, sounds interesting. Yeah, so I've heard a lot of good things about it. So I got it out at the library today, and a lot of our libraries here in Rochester are open. So I'm pretty pumped about that. And it's weird. I went to pick up. Uh, I I saw something on Craigslist for free. It was like a box of National Geographic's, 
And I, I emailed the guy. I was like, hey, they're free. I'll pick up the boxes. Tell me where. I So I pick up a bunch of these National Geographics, and I'm thumbing through it. And I've gotten more into photography over the years. So um, this kind of magazine is like right in my wheelhouse. And, of course, with a little bit of journalism background, you know, the writing in, in those magazines was always top-notch as well. But I saw an interesting article about uh, the Fresh Kills landfill in Staten Island. It was from, like uh, – the article was written like I think the mid '90s, maybe even the late '80s, and it got into the landfill and what it takes to, you know, make these landfills more safe and making sure things don't get into the water. Anyway, long story short, real interesting article about which was at the time like the biggest landfill in America, maybe even the world, on Staten Island, the Fresh Kills landfill. So I read the article and didn't think much about it afterwards. And then I saw the other day in the New York Times that same landfill. Lo and behold, it's been turned into a park, which just huh. opened. So they turned it into like this kind of green space. Uh, and I just thought that was kind of not ironic, but a little serendipity that I read this article from a random magazine that I got for free on the side of the road. And then lo and behold, a marvel of human construction or whatever you want to call it, ingenuity. And they turn this thing into a big green space on freaking Staten Island. So, yeah, nice. kind of fascinating. For me, I'm still reading the same book I was, but I, I did read a couple articles this week. And the one that really kind of struck me that was very interesting was I read an article about when James Cameron was developing and starting to cast for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And what I had no idea about the very two interesting facts I found. Obviously, Robert Patrick ended up being the guy who played T-1000, kind of uh, springboarded his career. Thousand advanced prototype. He, you know, he got into X Files, doing numerous films and stuff like that. He's, he's right now is on that Perry Mason show that's on HBO. He was obviously on his cast, but originally, two interesting possibilities about who might have played the T one thousand. One was that it was almost a done deal that Billy Idol was going to play the T one thousand, except he got in a in uh, an accident or an injury and couldn't do the part. I thought that was interesting because I don't I don't think I could imagine Billy Idol playing the T-1000. But this next possibility really, as the kids say, had shook because I thought if this would have happened, I would have been down with it. James Cameron actually proposed that the T-1000 be played by Michael Bean, who played oh, Kyle Riggs. That would have been brilliant move. From the first Terminator. So Bowser's. flipping that on its head, we were talking incredible. the – the guy who was the, 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 the villain is now the protector, and the one who was the protector is now the villain. And having to deal with the ramifications of Sarah Connor seeing her love who died at you know, Terminator's hands that, is, is got, now the Terminator. I got to veto that because we love – we said it before, I think, on the last pod. I love Michael Bean so damn much and wish he was in more stuff over the years. That would be hard for me to deal with because I wouldn't want to root against him. It was even hard rooting against him in frickin' Tombstone for Pete's sake. I wouldn't right. want to have to deal with that. That's too, that's too much emotions for me to deal with. I'm, but, you know, on paper and maybe in, re in reality, that would have been uh, – That would have been a really – I'm surprised I haven't heard that over the years. And speaking of – you mentioned Billy Idol. That would be kind of weird. Sting, though. Sting would have been a good possibility for that role just because he has a uh, – just kind of a cool look to him, right? Very poised, yep. and he's in good shape. I think he could have been too. a good T-1000. Yeah, that would have been an interesting choice for sure. All right, last up, my friend. What 
Mr. Mayo, are you listening to? I like to do the thing where if I'm rediscovering a band or a singer, or maybe I don't maybe know too much about them, I like to do a deep dive on their music catalog. But then I like to go chronologically, album by album, to kind of see how they've grown over the years. And REM has been a band I've really gotten into over the last 10 years or so. So lately I've been kind of just doing a deep dive on their stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. Murmur, their first album, came out in, I think, like, 83. I was listening to that the last couple nights and kind of, uh, you know, trying to pick up on all the bells and whistles. So that's really been the big thing is, thanks to Spotify, you can go back and check out a lot of stuff that would be expensive to buy. So Luke Mayo is dancing with a little REM lately. All right. And as for myself, I just finished up listening to – um, Bruce Campbell's second autobiography, Hail to the Chin, <laughs> The Confessions of a B-Movie Actor, and very interesting just chronicling you know, his um, own actions of um, directing and shooting My Name is Bruce, which he did partly on his own property and f funded some of the money. He talked about getting out of the rat race of leaving the hellish landscape that was L.A., and moving to a small town in, in Oregon, getting back to nature, because he's very much an environmentalist. Um, talked about, you know, shooting, you know, burn notice in Florida and going to one of the local bars and getting to know, know, know the people there. It's an, it was an interesting read um, because the guy just has, he's a, he calls himself a gypsy actor. He says, it was just rough on my kids because I was always, you know, in New Zealand or in Mexico or in Florida or in uh, Bulgaria or some, some god-awful place. Um, and it's, he has this obviously Bruce Campbell wit and humor, but I really got the sense of how intelligent the man actually is like this, this, he is not by any stretch of the imagination, a, a dummy. In some ways he seems very much like an everyman. And it was very interesting to hear his take when he got to go overseas and, um, you know, meet some of the troops during the Afghan and Iraq wars, uh, and, you know, how what a humbling experience that was for him. Um, so it was very cool to, to listen to that. I listened to that in like two days. <laughs> Better in your car? Uh, no, uh, on my computer while I was working. So you mentioned real quick, uh, this is one, this might be one of our longest pods ever here. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. It's different though, because we got the new segment. So that kind of elongates the experience a little bit, but real quick, I'm surprised we didn't bring this up during, during our seven talk. Uh, you mentioned Billy Idol in the injury and that I think was that what prevented him from getting that role? Yes. You mentioned the injury. The T-1000. Right. Brad, did you, did you see anything in the deep dive for seven, how Brad Pitt got that injury for real? So he suffers the injury during that chase and he's got like the bandage around his hand. Supposedly yep. he did that for real while filming. So they had to like be creative. So I guess like earlier in the film, he actually had like that bandage on like Brad Pitt, like the actor, but they couldn't uh -huh. show it because he didn't get the injury yet in the film, in the narrative. So they had to like have him, they had to like pretty much hide it. So I guess there's huh. a couple scenes where he's got his hand in like his jacket pocket and really he already had his hand screwed up from the on, you know, the, uh, the filmmaking injury. And they just kind of had to, you know, work around it for the film. But I thought that was kind of interesting. I've heard that. That's interesting. Yeah. All right, folks, that is uh, episode 24 of this fine, fine podcast, Movie Chumps, which, by the way, we've reached our um, 500 download mark. I think we're at like 521 downloads since nice. starting this bad boy up in January. So thank you all listeners for 
joining on this joining us on this fun cinematic journey. Only took us eight months. Yeah. <laughs> not bad though. Not bad. We're getting there. Uh, yeah. so for Corey Cook, I'm Luke Mayo. We will see you chumps next week. And remember, kids, all movies are subjective. Your mileage may vary. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.